Howdy, howdy, OCD family community. It's December already, and it often feels like this time of year just flies by, doesn't it? And speaking of time flying by, this is the final episode, the final part of my first OCD-related disorder series, Part 5, fam. So settle in, y'all, because today... We're talking about obsessive-compulsive personality disorder with the one, the only, Dr. Anthony Pinto. Did you even know there was a personality disorder with a common name to OCD? It's true. So join me, won't you, as we learn more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Part five. Part five. Oh, I'm really going to miss this series. It has been so illuminating regarding some of these OCD-related disorders. And I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. But alas, while this isn't the end... You're like, didn't she just say it's the end? Yes, it's the end. But it's not the end end. And we'll certainly continue to support our OCD-related disorder warriors and family. The good news, fam, is I'm just getting started. I mean, it feels like just yesterday I launched the premiere episode of OCD Family Podcast. But time has flown by, and today marks episode 18. Amazing. 18 weeks of dynamic guests experts, warriors with lived experience, and a whole lot of hope. And I've already got so much more great content to share with you that I can hardly wait for Friday to arrive each week. Just like I needed another reason to adore Fridays, right? (laughs) But it's been a pleasure meeting with all of our amazing guests and listeners each week, and it's certainly something that I don't take for granted. So thank you again. I know I've said it before and I'm probably starting to sound like a broken record, but this is the kind of repeating I don't mind. Sincerely, thank you for journeying with me as we all learn more about OCD and OCD-related disorders, resources, and support. We're not alone. And that's just pretty sacred. So today for part five of my OCD-related disorder series, We're talking with Dr. Anthony Pinto about obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, or OCPD for short. Y'all, Dr. Pinto is a worldwide expert and the leader, the leader in the field when it comes to OCPD. So imagine my excitement when he was so willing to take a seat at our family table to help us get a better understanding of OCPD. Now, why is this so important? Because A, I think I'm on to something when I say people get confused and they don't know what to do or what to make of personality disorders in general, okay? But secondly, or B, (laughs) OCPD shows up in a fourth of our OCD population. 
and it's predicted to be 2 to 8% in our general population. What's more is, you know, that annoying little habit where people like use OCD as an adjective. Well, ironically, that is more akin to OCPD. Though let me clarify, I'm not saying that if you're someone who misuses the term or you hear someone misuse the term, they're OCPD. No, not saying that. And again, this isn't diagnostic, but the nature, the essence, the, mm, I don't know, the reminiscent quality of exactness and really kind of preferential, superior, higher standard rules, <laughs> that is definitely more in camp OCPD than OCD. So what exactly is OCPD then? Well, we're about to dive into all of that and more, but first, join me as I acquaint y'all with Dr. Pinto just a bit more. Welcome, Dr. Anthony Pinto. He is the director of the Northwell Health OCD Center at Sucker Hillside Hospital on Long Island in New York and associate professor of psychiatry at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. The Northwell Health OCD Center offers evidence-based comprehensive outpatient treatment for OCD and OCPD, what we're talking about today, otherwise known as obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. It is one of the only specialized OCD facilities in the New York metropolitan area, including individual and group cognitive behavioral therapy as well as medication management. The OCD Center is also known for its excellence in providing teaching and supervision to doctorate-level trainees in psychology and psychiatry. And Dr. Pinto has an extensive publication record with over 100 manuscripts and chapters on OCD, and OCD-related conditions, particularly OCPD. He is the guy, you guys, so we are really lucky to have him here today. He's recognized as an authority on OCPD. He's co-edited a comprehensive book on the subject, which looks like it just came out in 2020. So a little pandemic project. Yeah. <laughs> and he leads trainings on CBT and OCPD. So he is the lead author of the self-rated Family Accommodation Scale for OCD, which I just downloaded from Yale's website this morning, and it's being used worldwide. So he serves on the International OCD Foundation Scientific and Clinical Advisory Board, as a couple of our guests have. So this is a real treat to have you here today, Dr. Pinto. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks, Nicole. I was really happy to talk to you, and congratulations on this podcast and all the great work you're doing in supporting those with OCD and their families. Well, thank you. And it's it's really been a joy because not only can I offer this support to families, but I feel like I'm learning so much every week and I can I can pass that on to this community, to my clients and use it in my in my own life. So this is wonderful. So today we're going to be talking about obsessive compulsive personality disorders. And I think in general, people have a, a struggle, even therapists understanding personality disorders, and there's mm -hmm. certain ones that we're a little more aware of, like, oh, I think that person's a narcissist. Maybe they have a narcissistic personality disorder. But overall, I think they're very tricky for people. And so when it comes to OCPD, when people are just now kind of grasping an understanding of OCD, you know, I think it's really important we talk about this because it shows up a lot more than we would realize. So when we're talking about OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, can you give us a helpful understanding of 
what mm-hmm. that means? Sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I'm glad that we're going to talk about how to differentiate this from other things. But first, let's talk just broadly about OCPD. For your listeners, there are 10 personality disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is what we use mm-hmm. to make diagnoses. And we know that OCPD is one of the most common of those personality disorders. So what is OCPD? It's, a, it's an enduring pattern that leads to maladaptive styles that include excessive perfectionism, preoccupation with order and details, and as well as like a high sense of control over themselves and over their environments, including the people in their lives. Mm-hmm. So it shows up in a variety of traits. So I mentioned perfectionism and rigidity. Those are the common or core features Mm -hmm. that pretty much show up in most cases of OCPD. But you'll see other things like this overtension to details that can show up in like hyper scheduling, needing things in their environment to be placed a certain way, organizing clothing or other items in particular ways. So, you know, one of the things you'll see in individuals with these traits is that They like things in their environment to be a certain way, Mm -hmm. and they end up spending lots of time trying to get it that way, Yeah, and which then leads to problems in their life, in their relationships, but also feeling like they're chronically behind and like always working through a backlog of tasks that they have to do. And so it, it leads to a lot of frustration with themselves and other people who are not living up to their standards and can be associated to low mood or anxiety, but create the sense of like feeling stuck. Like I'm not progressing in my life. I'm not moving towards the life I want. And so the, the, the treatment that we're going to get into is about how do we unlock, you know, from this pattern mm-hmm. of control and perfectionism so that you can move towards, you know, that life. And so, you know, some of the other things that you'll see in terms of traits, it could be like an excessive devotion to work and what we typically say, like the term workaholic, Mm -hmm. where they have really poor work-life balance Mm -hmm. and spend so much time working and feeling like, you know, my productivity and my achievement is so important that they sacrifice all these other areas of the life, including leisure and relationships. You know, they tend to like have a certain way of doing things around the house or, or at work where they don't want to delegate to other people because it has to be their way. Mm-hmm. You know, a tendency towards like not wanting to spend money or it tends to be judgmental of other people in terms of morals and ethics and values. So those are some of the traits that we'll, we'll get into. But in general, it's a, a cycle of per- perfectionism and control that can lead to problems in their functioning as well as like low quality of life. Yeah. And, you know, with a lot of personality disorders, I think if and when they're diagnosed properly, it's in adulthood. When do we start seeing manifestations of OCPD? Do we see it in younger ages? I'm sure it doesn't get Mm -hmm. caught very often. Mm -hmm. But when do you kind of start seeing some of these behaviors emerging? Right. Yeah. So when, when you think about from a developmental perspective, some of these tendencies towards like rigidity and routines can be very normative in kids. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen in your kids, I saw in mine, but, you know, as the child gets older, if that, that insistence on one way of doing things comes at the expense of flexibility in terms of being able to relate to other kids or to, you know, their affects their socializing or is generally causing them to be very upset 
anxious, like that's something that we would want to keep an eye on. We're reluctant to diagnose a personality disorder in a child. Right. Uh, and so that's usually something that we would do more in terms of like late adolescence, young adulthood. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I've found from my research is that you might see the beginnings of these things in the growing child, but like it starts to affect functioning when people move towards independence, which usually happens at late ad adolescence, young adulthood, particularly if they're going away to college. That's where they're no longer in an environment where the family might be accommodating some of their rigid ways. And, and then, you know, they're going to run into some problems in terms of getting along with other people who are not going to be so open to following their, you know, what they dictate, yeah. yeah, their rules. So, so yeah, that, that's the period where you usually will start to affect functioning in a more major way where the person could be diagnosed because of that effect on functioning. You know, something I'm thinking about as you're describing that. So, you know, I have some neurodiverse kiddos and I'm just thinking mm -hmm. of some of our neurodiverse population, yeah. whether we're talking about autism, ADHD, mm -hmm. or, you know, if we're talking about sensory processing disorder, sometimes there is a little bit of rigidity <laughs> and it can be hard to be a little more flexible in those situations. We also talked last week about hoarding where you might have things lined up or put in a certain way and you do get very upset if somebody moves it. And so is there a way to kind of differentially kind of gauge or keep an eye on, you know, could this just be a manifestation of their neurodiversity? Mm -hmm. Could it be or when to know when it's both? And again, we're probably going to see it bloom more as they get to 15 and up. But yeah, yeah. any ideas yeah. on that? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're meeting a client for the first time, you, you do want to get a developmental history in terms of when do they hit developmental milestones in terms of walking and talking in terms of what problems came up for them in school, like mm -hmm. what were the teachers noticing, what were the parents noticing in terms of attention or even relating to other people. But what, what I would say in terms of the differentials with something like ASD, because that's a question I often get because yeah. ASD, you know, part of it can be extreme rigidity. Right. And so, you know, one of the ways in which I tend to differentiate with the autism spectrum is just in terms of how they are relating to other people, because my sense of you know, the more primary OCPD case, those individuals are able to recognize emotions in other people. They can identify emotions in other people. They may not always know how to respond to those emotions or because they often will tell me emotions are a waste of time. And so they may not, you know, they may be controlled in their expression of emotion or not want to engage and talk about emotions. Mm -hmm. But they have a sense of how the relationships work, which can be more distinct in people on the autism spectrum. So, that, so that's one, one way of differentiating. Mm -hmm. and, and also I would look at the function of repetitive behavior mm -hmm. or the routines. In ASD, there's certainly going to be a more of a soothing quality to those behaviors. Right. Whereas OCPD, it's very much purposeful. Like I am going to rewrite this essay or rewrite my class notes because I have crossouts because I need to have my notes without any crossouts or I need to find the perfect word, you know, in this essay. So I'm going to rewrite it again. There is a, a high standard that they're trying to achieve uh, of perfection, which they can never quite get to. 
or rarely go to, or maybe they're putting extreme amounts of time and effort into it to get there. But there is like a purposeful quality towards it, as opposed to more of like the, the soothing that you see. The other condition you mentioned, ADHD, you know, the, the problems in attention that you see in ADHD, it can, it can be tricky to separate because often I will have people come into treatment because they're saying, I can't get things done. Yeah, I can't, I can't finish my homework and could appear that there are attention problems because, you know, and in ADHD, we know that people with the inattentive type can have trouble shifting. Right. So that's something you want to like do more of like a, a functional analysis to like see what's going on there. And there can be attentional problems in the context of OCPD. But I've had patients who have told me that they have presented to a prescriber and been put on a stimulant. And then we find that maybe it was actually more due to their high standards and like there is the you know very rigid rules they have for doing their work. And so that was really more driving it more than an intentional problem. Mm-hmm. Another example is reading. You know, these individuals with high attention to detail and perfectionism will reread the same passage over and over again because they want every last detail. Yeah. And so they're very slow to get through their reading for school or for work. It's because they feel like they have to understand every bit of it. They have what we call intolerance of uncertainty. And so that can sometimes mirror what you would see in ADHD because they're not getting through the reading in a timely way. So you want to get a sense of it. Is it because they're drilling down on every detail or is it that they're really having trouble keeping their attention to the page? And then the final thing you mentioned was hoarding. Hoarding, you know, hoarding disorder, which we now have as a separate diagnosable entity in DSM, right. we characterize that because of difficulties discarding as well as often major accumulation of items where they can't use their you know, rooms of their home for their intended purpose. Mm-hmm. You can see difficulty discarding in OCPD, but it's often more related to, I'm going to hold on to this partially completed project because I'm going to get to it eventually, or I'm going to hold on to these magazines and newspapers because I have to read it in my slow, methodical way. So there's a pileup of stuff, not because of an emotional attachment that you see in hoarding, but more of this, I'm going to get to it eventually. Okay, that's really helpful. And I think one of the keys that you've talked about here too, and we've talked about, really this has been a theme throughout for the OCD family community, is looking at the function of the behavior or the act or the thought, right? And so really what you're describing sounds, the family knows this term, egocentonic mm-hmm. with what somebody wants to achieve. There's purpose and it's satisfying when they get to the goal, but it can take some time because they have such incredibly high standards for that goal versus OCD, which we've learned about being egodystonic because certainly you can reread or you can rewrite. But you're really driven from a place of distress and not distress because you wanted to be more perfect, but distress because that intrusive feeling that something bad could happen or, you know, fill in the blank. It could be a myriad of things, but that's really driving it. And so if we look at function, then we can see for OCPD, it's more egocentric. And it's really kind of to meet these own kind of individual standards using the rules and whatnot that the person interprets as the right or best rule for it. So in talking about that, can you help us to kind of look at OCD and OCPD? Because I think often 
people get misdiagnosed as OCD, and it's not necessarily, mm-hmm. even though it can co-occur with, but yeah. it is separate. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's a, a very important topic and something I spend a lot of time talking about. So when we think about when the use of the word OCD in our popular culture, you'll hear people say, oh, oh he's so OCD or she's so OCD. They're usually referring to an individual who's being meticulous or particularly fussy, overly organized. And what they are referring to are some of the traits that are associated actually to OCPD. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is, you know, unfortunately, the names are so common that people are often, you know, confusing the two. And not only in the general public, but also in mental health professionals. Right. And so we do know that while these disorders can co-occur in actually 25% of people with OCD will also meet full criteria for OCPD. So mm. it, it is important for clinicians who treat OCD to be aware of OCPD and its traits because it will show up in your caseload. And we know that these traits can get in the way of exposure response prevention for OCD. It can get in the way of CBT and other treatments for anxiety disorders, as well as eating disorders, mood disorders. So it's important for clinicians to be aware of these traits mm-hmm. and what to do about them. But in terms of how we can think about OCD versus OCPD, so as you described, OCD is the presence of intrusive, unwanted thought content, which could be about contamination, about aggressive obsessions, sexual, religious, you know, symmetry. and these intrusive or unwanted thoughts then are accompanied by very particular responses, mm-hmm. which can physical compulsions or mental compulsions, but essentially the compulsive behaviors are used as a way to escape the distress of these obsessions or to create a sense of certainty or safety, to create a sense of like the right feeling right. or the complete feeling. So that's the egodystonic nature of OCD. Like the person sees these behaviors and these thoughts as foreign or separate from who they are, yet they feel compelled to do it in order to feel safe or certain. Mm-hmm. OCPD, as you mentioned, the thoughts and behaviors of OCPD are seen as consistent with how they see themselves and the world. It's consistent with their view of how things should be. And very important for your listeners is that in OCPD, we do not see this, the kind of intrusive, unwanted thought content that is associated with OCD. So these individuals are not having the kinds of threatening, fear-inducing intrusions, you know, to the level of individuals with OCD. Right. What's causing problems for somebody with OCPD is that there's only so much time in the day and that, you know, the time-consuming nature of their routines and the methodical way that they approach the world is going to make it so that they are going to feel burned out and not able to achieve or complete things the way that they would want to. And so they, they're chronically frustrated with themselves, sometimes with other people who are not meeting their standards. And that creates a lot of like dissatisfaction, anxiety that creates a feeling of, you know, depression at times. And so... Those are the differences like that. You know, when we talk about OCPD, it's really about like, this is how I think things should be. Yet 
they can't achieve it because it's an unreasonably high standard for themselves and for other people. Right. So if we're thinking about like perfectionism OCD or moral scrupulosity OCD, right, mm-hmm. which are kind of themes that kind of overlap with OCPD, but the function is different, then right. we're going to probably see more distress if the thing doesn't feel perfect. And I think yeah. feel Feeling is an operative word, too, with that, because you often are feeling the distress in OCD and then you think about it and all the things. Right. But within OCPD, you're more likely, if anything, to be agitated because you want it to be a certain way. It's not quite there. Maybe you don't have enough time to do it again or whatnot, or somebody else is not doing it correctly. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have maybe more of that frustration if you're feeling distress and The distress isn't because you're doing the task. The distress is because lack of time or burnout or other people screwing it up kind of thing. So that would be some of the distinguishing factors. Certainly, depression can co-occur within OCD, and we can see some of that agitation that can also look like frustration. So Mm -hmm. frustration in and of itself is not diagnostic criteria to just be able to differentiate. But if we do look at the function, ego dystonic in OCD and more anxious distress, although it can be irritability, we're going to see in OCPD more of that egocentric, like this is who I am and I can't control that everybody else is not working towards these better, mm-hmm. h- highly regarded goals, but they're doing what they can and there's just not enough time or other people keep flubbing it up kind of thing like that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's good. And uh, the only the piece I would add is the the presence of the obsessional thought content, which is a hallmark of OCD. You're, I mean, people with OCPD are going to have thoughts that don't make sense to them as well, but that's not going to be something that they are trying to get rid of by right. doing these compulsive behaviors. So that the intrusions that you see in OCD, you know, that that's really an important part of that diagnosis. That is not a part of the experience of somebody with OCPD. Yeah, that's a really good point. So intrusions are a driving factor in OCD, but in what could be perceived as intrusive, the distress in OCPD is more of a a product of things not getting done. There's there's not an aim per se to solve an intrusive mm-hmm. quandary. It's more of it's it's frustrating that I don't have more time to do more towards these right. things in my life. Yeah. Right. So somebody with OCPD will, if they're feeling uncomfortable because this project is not turning out the way I want, mm-hmm. they will pour more time into it because they also want they want to get rid of that uncomfortable feeling. But it's not because they are trying to get rid of, you know, thoughts that they perceive as dangerous. Right. Which is an OCD quality. Right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So you said 25% of the population mm-hmm. with OCD kind of overlap with OCPD. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm going to guess that we're pretty underdiagnosed on OCPD. And so can you talk more about the process of, even in the work that you've done, being able to tease out OCPD and the track for treatment and for support on the OCPD front? Because I think now that we're getting the concept of where they're different in terms of our definitions, what do Mm -hmm. we do about it? And so just kind of getting an idea about how you were able to develop and flesh out 
your work on OCPD and what that means for our listening community in terms of what does treatment look like and how mm -hmm. do we get more educated about this and all of those sorts of factors. Yeah, a, a few points that I want to make about that because I think you're, you're getting at the, the prevalence of this in the general population, but also what brings people into treatment. Mm, yeah. uh, so what we know in terms of, you know, again, this is the, another theme I'm sure I'll be hitting on. We need more research in OCPD. I mean, I think we've come a long way in OCD in terms of looking at, you know, the, the course of it, treatment approaches. We now have, we have our standard treatments. We have our more, you know, novel treatment. There's a lot that has been, you know, that has happened in terms of uh, our understanding of OCD. Could be better. You know, there's still more we can do. Right. But OCPD as a personality condition really lags way behind. And there's little that we know about the neurobiology of it. I mean, we have a sense that it, you know, there is a, a, a familial genetic component, but we really don't understand that specifically, we really don't know in terms of brain imaging much about what's happening in the brains of people with OCPD. We have some ideas. And then in terms of treatment, you know, even assessment, you know, is something that we're developing. But treatment, we think cognitive behavioral approaches are very helpful, but we really have to get the word out and get clinicians trained on how to, to approach these traits. Mm -hmm. So just in terms of like the, the, the prevalence in the general population, we think it's about 2 to 8% of the general population will meet criteria for OCPD. And that's full criteria, which, you know, from the DSM is currently, you have to have four of four. eight criteria, um, you know, but we, but we want clinicians to be aware of this, even in people who don't meet the full threshold, because you could have somebody who has maladaptive perfectionism and perhaps doesn't have a lot of other OCPD traits, but that perfectionism in itself can be very interfering in the person's life and could interfere in whatever they're coming to treatment for. So even on the treat level, it's uh, important to be aware. And in fact, the newer versions of the DSM that will be coming out in the future will likely have more of a hybrid approach of looking at categorical diagnosis as well as dimensional traits, because we think personality traits are important to think about on a dimension mm -hmm. uh, across all of our patients, not just in those that meet a categorical definition. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to mention about OCPD is because of the way we diagnose it, mm -hmm. there's a lot of heterogeneity or variability in terms of how these people present. Mm -hmm. And so I also have found it helpful to think about what are some of the common presentation styles of OCPD. Yes. Uh, and, and what I have found is that there are some of these patients that have a predominant anxious presentation style mm -hmm. and some have a more predominant controlling presentation style. And these are not mutually exclusive. Like right. you could have somebody who shows up with different styles in different situations, but they may have more of a predominant one. And the controlling personality style is going to be the type that's going to be very critical of other people, judgmental of other people, more likely to confront others, more difficulty in sharing and relating in terms of emotions, more controlled, more likely to have anger outbursts. Yeah. And we could talk about how that shows up in terms of, you know, romantic relationships or parenting relationships. They're going to be very resistant to change and very rule bound. The person who has more of that anxious presentation style, their criticism is going to be very much pointed inward. 
and very self-critical, more indecisive, trouble with managing time because they're trying to do too much, maybe more people-pleasing and self-sacrificing because they are more concerned about what other people think of them than somebody with that controlling style. And these are the people that are going to be very detailed in terms of processing information, making sure they get all of it. But they're going to be the ones that are going to want to overqualify their statements because they want to make sure that people understand that they have thought of all the different details. So that's just to give your listeners a sense of like different ways that these people can present. So what is, is there insight around that for them? Mm -hmm. Do they have some level of awareness of how that is coming off or how they are processing the information or is that not really on the radar? Yeah, so which is a good segue into when do people realize this is a problem? One of the sort of the misconceptions about personality disorders, particularly OCPD, is like, oh, these people don't show up for treatment because they don't think they have a problem. And what I have found because of largely because of the Internet and the availability of information Mm -hmm. is that individuals with OCPD are much more likely these days to self-identify if they can access this information. That's why podcasts like this are so important because we're trying to get the information out to people where they can use it. Yeah. So people are more likely now to be able to read an article and they already tend to be like, these are good researchers because they look, you know, they research everything. Right. So including if they have to make a purchase, but so, but they, they're reading about this stuff and they're saying, hmm, that sounds like me. And so they're more likely to then say, you know, I, I read this thing, you know, I read your book, I read this article. And so that I think is a good thing that information is trickling out there and we need to do more to get more information out to, to families and, and individuals. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, awareness, these individuals with OCP are showing up for treatment, but they may not always be naming it. They might be coming in because they are feeling down or depressed or feeling like I'm stuck, feeling like progressing in my job. I'm not getting promoted. I'm slow to get my work done. I'm not able to finish my my degree. They have a sense that I am moving too slowly and other people are progressing and I am not. So that feeling of stuckness can bring people into treatment, but it could also be the relationship aspect. And this is where the relationship part, if they are in a relationship, romantic relationship, these relationships can be very highly conflicted because of the the way in which this person, you know, wants to operate. And so in those cases, you might see somebody coming in because my partner is threatening to leave or my, you know, my partner is pushing me into treatment. Or there could be an awareness that, you know, the... I'm not in a romantic relationship and I'm having lots of difficulty with that part of my life or I'm having conflict with my my friends or my colleagues, you know, mm-hmm. coworkers. So there are a lot of reasons that can they can come into treatment. And again, it may not be naming it as OCPD. Another thing, they might be showing up in primary care settings because they're having anxiety-related somatic symptoms, mm-hmm. which could be manifesting as like gastrointestinal or headaches and you know, because of this frustration or stuckness manifesting in their body. So there is certainly more awareness about something is not right and I'm feeling stuck. Uh, And so that can bring people into treatment or they're feeling like I'm not living the life I want. I'm chronically behind 
and I'm not achieving or moving forward in the way I'd like to. So that's some of what gets them in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I believe when we were talking last week about hoarding, we talked about how there is a higher propensity of those individuals to not be in romantic relationships. And mm-hmm. so it sounds similarly because unless you have somebody that's super passive and indecisive and is like, you're a breath of fresh air for me, um, right. they're probably going to butt heads. And even that, because do you find over time, especially if treatment's not in place, that the rigidity uh-huh. becomes more and more pervasive or strong? Or do you find like it can ebb and flow through different developmental stages? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what I have seen in the individuals I've worked with is either they have not made time for romantic relationships and they put all of their effort into achievement and trying to advance a career and have not made time for social leisure and romance, or they are in a relationship. And and this is where the personality of the partner also comes into play, because if it's somebody who is also rule bound and with tendencies towards rigidity, you can have a lot of clashes, a lot of arguments. So there's some thinking that if, if a person with OCPD ends up with somebody who's dependent, perhaps that person is going to gel more because they're going to allow the OCPD individual more to like be the driver of things. Right. So it does depend on who that person ends up with. But yeah, the relationship piece is an important topic in the therapy because that that's where a lot of the breakdown can be showing up. Yeah. So when we're talking about the breakdown and when we're getting maybe from a subclinical or partial level, even if it's at partial, you said sometimes it can be such a strong piece of that person's functioning that it can still be disruptive, even if they're not meeting full criteria. But when we're crossing the threshold from subclinical, because as we've talked about here on the podcast, like any of us, because we're human beings, we have all of different personalities, whatnot, we're going to qualify somewhere on some symptom on this list or that list or this list. And it's not diagnostic in and of itself. It's just part of who we are. But in terms of when this crosses that threshold into disorder, And we're seeing the negative impact, and again, on functioning. So it might be home functioning, it might be school, vocational, social functioning. Then that's when we're kind of crossing into that threshold of it would be worth getting some treatment. And as you said, it could be the partner or the marriage or the relationship being on the verge of ending that might be prompting somebody to come in. But yeah, I would imagine those relational aspects because it it can feel pretty lonely. It's satisfying because you're in control, and especially if you have that controlling trait within that. But at the same time, it can be distressing because you don't have time to have a family. You don't have time to, you know, fill in the blank. And so can you talk a little bit more about when it crosses into that threshold from subclinical OCPD traits into the disordered realm? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So to meet criteria for a a DSM diagnosis, there has to be that impact on functioning. And so what we know from the research that I've done, like looking at how OCD compares with OCPD, we have found that both conditions are associated with poor quality of life, as well as like significant impact 
on psychosocial functioning, which mm -hmm. could be in the work domain, it could be school, it could be in relationships and leisure. So that's going to be an important thing to focus on when you're meeting this client in terms of how are these OCPD traits after you've assessed for them, how are they actually getting in the way? Because one of those initial steps when you're starting to work with a new client is the buy-in and how are we going to convey the need for treatment and how treatment will be helpful. And so my approach is to be as transparent as possible about what we are working on, let's name it, and what are the therapeutic approaches that are available to us that can help us get to the life you want. And so ACT, yeah. acceptance, commitment therapy really emphasizes values. And so I think that that's a, an important thing to emphasize in terms of like, let's paint a picture of the life you want mm -hmm. and how can how can cognitive behavioral therapy help you to get there? And so that, and I think we want to also emphasize with a new patient that because they may have ambivalence, right? As you and I were talking about earlier, we're talking about personality traits and this is how they see themselves and the type of person they see, they see themselves as, mm -hmm. you know, this therapy is not meant to change the core of who you are. Mm -hmm. This is meant to leverage your many strengths in a way that can help us to create more balance in your life, to bring more quality of life, and to help move you forward towards the life you want because they're feeling stuck. Because the way that they view, the way they're approaching the world, this very methodical, rigid way of doing things mm -hmm. is so time-consuming and so taxing on them that there's little left to feel like they're moving forward. So explaining the treatment, the rationale, and how this can help you get there is important to keep them connected to the treatment, but also to motivate them as you go through it. Because I work from a, like this, a cognitive behavioral perspective mm -hmm. and making change in somebody with OCPD is going to be very uncomfortable because they're somebody who tends to not like change and to be resistant to that. So I'm going to be explaining the rationale, but also asking them to apply openness and willingness to be uncomfortable in exchange for moving towards that life that they want. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's where I try to like lay out very concretely, like, how are we going to get there? What are we going to do? And it's going to involve experiential learning, like behavioral experiments where we can try new ways of doing things that are going to be less time consuming, less taxing on you so that you can move to that life. Yeah. So I also find it helpful to use some metaphors with these patients. Yeah. And one of the common ones that I like to use, which I developed with a colleague of mine, Dr. Michael Whedon at Barnard College, is the dimmer switch. Mm -hmm. So when we think about a light switch, mm -hmm. right, the light switch is either on or off. Right. And the person with OCPD is approaching tasks in this on-off quality. I'm either going to put 100% effort into it or I'm not at all. And the putting that 100% effort is going to be like so burdensome because they feel like it has to be done like to the nth degree. Right. And so if you have a dimmer switch in your house, you know that it gives you more options in terms of like I could put the light dim or I can place it on full brightness. And so I, I want them to think about applying effort to tasks based on how important that task is, right? So 
if I am working on a project at work that's going to lead to my promotion, then I'm going to dial it up and put some extra effort into it because I really want the outcome. Right. But if I'm washing my dishes at home, I don't need to dial it up. I have to deliberately dial it down so I can save that energy, that, that effort and apply it towards things that are more important to me, like spending time with my kids or with my spouse or doing other projects that I care about, community service, whatever. So having a sense of their values and what's important to them and helping them to modulate the amount of effort that they put into something based on how important it is. That's a key metaphor that we keep coming back to. Yeah. And it will be uncomfortable for them because they're so used to this on off light switch. Shifting to a dimmer is going to create distress because they're going to feel like even the low important tasks, I need to approach them with full effort. So this is where we're going to then maybe say, okay, instead of pre-rinsing your dishes, we're going to put them right into the dishwasher and take a chance that maybe some of that gunk is not going to get off. But we're going to save time that you're going to then spend on other stuff that you care about. So rather than rereading the scene, this article multiple times, we're going to read it once and get like the gist of it. And so that's a, an example of this dimmer. Like we're going to dial down effort for things that are less important so that we can have more energy in the tank for things that are more important. Yeah. You know, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I love that analogy or the metaphor rather of the dimmer switch. I was thinking, similar to what you just reiterated, that mm -hmm. it might be hard for them to say, well, what is low on the totem pole? Yeah. Or what is low on the dimmer? And what's high? Because it's important to do all things well, you know? And awesome. so... When you say, because I, I can think, you know, I can think of conversations mm -hmm. I've had with people where they're like, hey, this is still important. When, yeah. we, when we kind of step back and zoom out and add up all the time, sure, it takes time. But I don't do it all at once. I do a little here. I do a little there. And it makes a difference. And it's meaningful. And so how to even rate because i think there's certain things that we're like well yeah obviously you know people relationships all that is probably going to rate hopefully a lot higher than how you put away the towels but yeah. it feels very distressing to even consider that the towels aren't important so in creating kind of would it be considered a hierarchy or, or what would you guys mm -hmm. call it in okay so in yeah. creating the hierarchy do you find clients getting kind of stuck with how to even prioritize what is their values? Because it's, it's all yeah. it's all kind of inclusive in the values. Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking that. I think that is a good topic of conversation. So one thing I'll say before I get into that is like, we have to like orient them to this idea that we all are operating based on a, let's say a gas tank or a wallet of mental resources. Like we only have so much that we can be spending each day or exhausting out of our tank. And so at the very, very beginning of treatment, I'm explaining this to them and I'm trying to paint a picture of like living a life of OCPD rules is very taxing and very draining. And so if we're going to make changes in this therapy, we have to figure out how to put some resources back in that tank or more cash in the wallet, so to speak. So that's where these in the, in the beginning stages of treatment, we're talking about, you know, sort of foundational self-care. 
So that conversation has to happen before we can get into like disrupting some of their beliefs or rules. So we're going to talk about like, okay, how are you handling your meals and how much sleep are you getting? Are you doing anything for leisure? And so, and often these patients will be like, what's leisure, right? Because they, they have not made time for it. Yeah. And are you socializing? What are some tasks that bring you pleasure? And so in very sort of gradual ways, we're initially trying to behaviorally activate them. So they're, they're making some changes towards filling up the tank. Because if they come in to therapy depleted, not sleeping, not eating well, not doing anything, you know, for pleasure, nothing, no social contacts, there's nothing to work with. You know, they're not going to be able to make the behavior changes that we are describing because it's all going to feel very overwhelming. So we do that. And then we move into what you were talking about in terms of like making some decisions about like, what are the rules that are burning up these resources and like, what are the ways in which you are approaching your world mm-hmm. that are really taxing? And so we might start with the basics of like, what are some things that you're doing in your own home that maybe are taking you longer than other people? Yeah. And so it might mean like, you know, like how you make your bed or how you handle your dishes or can you leave dishes in the sink when you're sitting down to eat? How often are you changing your sheets? Like you're vacuuming. So we get into all this kind of minutia because we're, we're trying to find ways to save some time and effort so we could devote it towards things that they consider to be more important, right? In the big picture. In the moment, they're going to feel like everything is important, but we're trying to get them connected back to this values conversation. Right. If you want your life to look different, we're going to have to modify how you're spending your time. And so we're going to make this list of these different rules and categorize them. But we may actually have to talk to some people in their lives that they trust, who they feel like are effective in terms of their jobs and in keeping their homes, and maybe ask those people some questions about how they handle chores. Like, do you rinse your dishes before you put them in the dishwasher? How often do you change your sheets? So they can calibrate a bit because they, they will have to be with people they trust or are they going to discount it as like, oh, but that person's sloppy or that person doesn't care. Okay. Or they'll ask a coworker, how much time do you spend on writing a report or how much research do you do before you start writing? So it, that will help us to get to get a sense of like a norm. Yeah. And then we'll try to put some of these things in place, building towards, you know, making changes that will create more time for them to devote towards other things. But We're not going to wait until we make all these changes to start doing like the big value stuff. We're going to gradually work those things in at the same time because in order to motivate the person to make change, there's got to be a functional win. So if they are concerned that they are not spending time with their kids, then we're going to like work in some activities with the kids now while these other changes. Right. And as they feel the benefit of having that time and being able to check off the list that I did spend more time with my kids, that's going to be helpful. I like the idea of the cash in the wallet and the and the gas in the tank, too, because I think a lot of these individuals with OCPD are very smart. They've put in a lot of time and effort and they have very complex reasoning and comprehensive reasoning on why something would be efficient, even if it takes a long time, but in a certain way. 
And so I, I like that idea because just even kind of giving them that time budget and going, okay, so if we only have this much time, I get yeah. it that the towels are just as important as also doing this thing well with your family. But where could we pull some time? We only have this much time. And, and we look at it concretely. They can outweigh. Well, I wouldn't like it, but the towels aren't as important as this. Okay, so now we know the towels are lower on the list and kind of fleshing it out that way. Because I think, like you said, it all goes back to buy-in. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if they want to be able to look at their values and look at what they want to change, we need to be able to find out where the buy-in is. You can have more time. You could get some massages. You could have a date night. You could have a day off. You could go on a trip. Yeah. The person really needs to be experiencing that for themselves rather than us telling them these things. Like they have to have that learning and they need to be open and willing to be uncomfortable. And so, so this is also where the, there's a, a parallel to exposure work in OCD because you, you mentioned the, the case of the person putting away the towels just so. You know, we may have to have them just drop the towels in and have them be asymmetrical and messy because there is an element of that person who has a need for order that's going to feel very uncomfortable and we want them to notice what is the impact that that behavior is having on you physiologically. And so I, in the beginning of treatment, I have them report to me, how are you feeling that in your body, that distress or frustration, that irritability? So they'll say like, oh, I feel really tense in my chest or in my stomach, or I get a headache. And because what I really want them to understand that the compulsive methodical behaviors that you're doing or a way to get rid of that, like sort of that bad feeling, and mm -hmm. which is very similar to what we talk about in OCD. So if you can deposit the towels without doing all this straightening out and placing them a certain way, they can realize like it is it's possible for me to, to tolerate that uncomfortable feeling even without doing any kind of behavior in response. That's interesting. And you were mentioning with primary care, this can show up. I'm wondering how many people like with something like IBS, yeah. where stress can be a trigger, <laughs> can really overlap with not just OCPD, a myriad of different mental health and physical health conditions. But yeah, because you can think of, oh, well, what's the, the trigger for it? I'm feeling I'm feeling upset. I feel that stomachache. I feel that irritability. And that's, it's very, very fascinating. When you're in treatment and you do have that overlap with OCD, yeah. because the rules in OCPD are like mm -hmm. so specific, and then the rules and the twisting of the rules and the manipulation of the rules that OCD loves to do, that's a tricky combo. Yeah. Trying to both make some progress on the OCPD and kind of zoom back a little bit from these rules when it can be getting caught up in the compulsory cycle as well. Can you mm -hmm. speak to what that looks like and how you tease out the difference between the rules that kind of go with OCPD, what goes with OCD, or do you treat it all as one big glob, one big mush of nice. rules and try yeah. to go forward like that? Yeah. Yeah, what we know from the research is that these OCPD traits can impact response 
to ERP for OCD. And, and, and so what we have found, like in behavioral treatment for OCD, that the presence of these traits, particularly perfectionism, can lead to poor response for the individual with, with OCD. And that can also show up as like greater risk of dropping out of treatment, getting really hung up on the homework assignment and making sure I'm doing my ERP the right way. Yeah. Feeling like if the, if the treatment is not progressing perfectly, then why bother? These individuals are also going to be less likely to generalize some of the assignments to other aspects of their life, and so, which we know is really important for maintaining treatment gains. So, so for all of those reasons, it's important for the clinician to keep an eye out for perfectionism or for the rigid rule bound ways, because as I've said, that, that can get in the way. So in that thorough assessment you do in the beginning of treatment, if you're getting the sense, if you're getting that OCPD read, I would suggest thinking about working on flexibility before you get into the actual heart of the ERP for OCD treatment. And so what I mean by that is look at some of the, what are some of the rules that like we were just describing that are coming up for them that are not related to their OCD symptoms. So things that have to do with the way they do household chores or how they manage their schoolwork or their jobs. Maybe there's some ways that we can work on some of the behavioral experiments I was talking about before to help them with flexibility, to help them with this idea of willingness, which is like a decision to be uncomfortable in, in exchange for moving towards the life I want. I would work on some of those things before I get into the ERP, because I think they'll be much more likely to be engaged in ERP and will respond more if you've done some of that prep work. Right. And I think this goes along with it, but I was thinking distress tolerance or distress acceptance, being able to withstand the distress because we already we're going to have to choose and we have to have buy in on that choice for the OCPD client that you're going to be experiencing some of this distress. You're inviting that in for areas where you already like how you do it. You just don't like the the cascade of effects that come from it. Make room for it. Right. Make room for it. That's a great way of saying it. Also, another kind of thing that we can also look back to is as you're going through some of those rules in the beginning of treatment, keep an ear out for if those are egocentonic or egodystonic. If there's syntonic aspects of it, then and, and different than just that ever so slight temporary relief that sometimes compulsions can provide. But if there's like there's purpose, there's meaning ascribed to that that feels good mixed with the bad. Then we can kind of go, okay, I think OCPD and OCD may be wrestling mm -hmm. here. So if you start with some of that work in the beginning, figuring out some of that flexibility, learning to be able to hold some distress, then that would be a great place to start. In OCD, we use the Y box and Psy box. There's some other measures too, but those are certainly one of the top resources that we use. I know that you, and as I introduced you in the beginning, talked about the self-rated family accommodation scale, but what skills do you use or recommend using for assessing OCPD? And this would be for any therapists or clinicians, psychologists listening to kind of help sort this piece out. Yes. Yeah. Great, great question. So we, we have a few options. So 
from in terms of a clinical interview, we have we have structured interviews for personality disorders. So the most common ones are the, the SCID two and the DIPD, which are adapted for DSM five. So each of those has a section of prompt questions for OCPD. I often use the eight items in the DIPD and you can then score them as a zero, one, two, you know, zero meaning not present, one being present, but clinically insignificant versus two, which is clinically significant. So that can give you a sense of like where that person is in terms of like severity, but that, that, those are clinician administered instruments. But as far as self-report, I've developed with colleagues a scale called the POPs. It's the Pathological Obsessive Compulsive Personality Scale, which it, you know, has 49 items, which it's again, self-report. But it, what's nice about it is that it gives you the total score can be used as an index of severity. And it also breaks down into dimensional factors or traits. So you can get a sense of like where they are on perfectionism, on rigidity, on reluctance for change. So it has these factors as well as like the overall score. So that scale is available in the, the book called Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder, which is edited by John Grant, myself, and in Chamberlain. So, so you can take a look at that or people can reach out to me if they, they have trouble finding it. So those would be some of the assessment tools. That's great. So I always put a page up on ocdfamilypodcast.com for oh. each podcast episode, and no. I will put a link to that book in case people are interested. I know I'm going to give myself a copy because I think that would be really helpful. And I was just going to ask if it happens to be publicly available or not. So that is really great. So if you get that book, which is also going to give you a comprehensive understanding of OCPD you can also have access to that resource. And do you know, is it an audio book as well where you can download from the publisher some of the... Yeah, I know I know the book was available. I mean, it's published by American Psychiatric Association Publishing, so you okay. can get it through them. It was, it's, it's been on Amazon as well. I'm not sure if there is an audio version, but I did write a chapter for that book on CBT for OCPD, so you can get a sense of like what things look like session by session. Oh, that's really, really helpful. You hear that? Therapists, we're always like, I, can somebody just map it out for me? Unless you're doing like, uh, you know, some of like Combi or like the BFRB treatments or whatnot. It's kind uh, of like. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah, it's nice to be able to like see the interaction with the patient to get a, a sense of like, what should I be working on? What are some things I could give them for homework? Yeah. Let's say, you know, somebody here in, in the audience is going this sounds like maybe they're self-identifying, like you said, mm -hmm. they're, and they're aware and they're able to do that, where with certain disorders, there, there isn't mm -hmm. that insight. But maybe a loved one is going, oh, well, I've been trying to deal with my loved one's OCD, or they're on a waiting list for OCD therapy, and we're trying to get connected to a qualified provider. But this sounds like what they have. How do we broach that conversation without totally shutting them down or getting them mm -hmm. on the defense where they can actually hear the concerns. Because I would imagine, because again, so much of it is egocentric, then it's going to feel personal. And I think just the terminology personality disorder, disorder period sounds pejorative, but personality mm -hmm. disorder, it sounds like, oh, you think I'm like really off? Because it's yeah. egocentric, it feels so much of who they are. 
what are some tips that you would have on having these conversations with your loved one if you think maybe your child, maybe your parent, maybe your spouse, maybe your partner could be dealing with OCPD? Yeah, yeah, that's it's that's an important discussion. So I think I would start with providing some information and because I think the individual is much more likely to be open to treatment if they can read something or, or you know, or watch a, uh, a video or a podcast like this where they can see themselves. And so I'll share the link to our program's website, but I have some videos on there about OCPD. So it's northwell.edu forward slash OCD center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some information there that the loved ones can provide to the individual. But I think it would be approaching the individual, and again, from a sort of non-judgmental perspective and commenting on what the loved one is observing in terms of the person's emotional response to day to day. Like, you know, I'm, I'm noticing that you've been getting really frustrated or I'm noticing that you are talking about feeling stuck. And I'm wondering if it's related to like how you're spending your time and some of the ways in which you are getting like really caught up in details or feeling bogged down and validating and saying, I imagine that must be really hard for you. And that must be be a struggle to go through each day feeling so burdened. So I, I try to take that approach and to provide information where they can see themselves because you know, what I have found in the individuals I worked with is that they, especially if they have never heard of this, the idea that other people are experiencing this as well is very reassuring to them and to feel like other people understand and I'm not alone. And so at our OCD center here at Northwell, we also offer a group for individuals with OCPD, which, you know, is pretty unique. And we have found that individuals have like really bought into that idea of being able to be with individuals who have a lot of similarities and can see the world. And hearing other people's stories helps them to take a closer look at what's going on for them. So there is help out there. And, you know, I really want to convey to individuals, whether you're affected or the loved one of someone who's affected, that, you know, this is a a treatable condition, you know, with the right forms of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I really want to uh, instill hope in that, you know, in looking for that treatment. In terms of where to find treatment, <laughs> is a, that can be very dicey in terms of the extreme demand that's been on like the mental health resources. But, you know, because of this overlap with OCD, many clinicians who are experts in treating OCD will be familiar with OCPD. And so I still would encourage people to take a look at the resource director of the International OCD Foundation. To find, you know, who in your area treats OCD, but ask those individuals specifically, what is your experience in working with OCPD? And so that you can get a sense as to whether they can tailor their treatment for this personality condition. Yeah. And I found like there are a few, especially if you live in a town like near Rogers or McLean or something, Uh your local area is going to be a little more knowledgeable about OCD, but I'm in Indiana. Not a lot of people know about OCD in Indiana. And so a lot of therapists, and when I did my BTTI training, I remember talking to a lot of people that didn't start out of the gate doing OCD. They were specializing or working generally in other areas. 
they got a client or a couple of clients. They started to learn how to do the treatment for OCD, and there they were. So usually I find that the therapists are pretty open to learning more if they don't know. And we've talked a lot on the podcast throughout about if you're a treatment provider and you don't know, let people know you don't know. And if you give them that consent, refer out if you really can't do it or give them the informed consent that we're going to learn together on this. But I think most ERP therapists didn't start ERP. For the most part, there are outliers in that, but they're willing to go and grow. And so bringing them, if they don't have much awareness about OCPD, can we figure this out together? I think that's what's going on. They would be very open and they'd probably be very able to help facilitate this treatment because you can use some ERP, but also just cognitive behavioral therapy, behavior activation, all these different things are going to be skill sets that if they're doing OCD, they should be a CBT therapist in some capacity. Yeah, this has kind of made a little more waves recently. Have you, do you know much about ICBT, inference-based CBT, and how that might work in conjunction with doing OCPD treatment? Yeah, you know, I would say I'm like a new learner about ICBT and, you know, read some about it, but I haven't really thought too much about how to apply that to OCPD. In terms of like some other approaches that we talked about, CBT, CBT is sort of an umbrella for various treatments, but there are um, books out there on ACT for perfectionism, one by Sarah Egan, another one, um, uh, last name is Ong. And so th those are also helpful in terms of some resources. Radically Open DBT, which is a, a reformulation of dialectical behavior therapy for people that are over-controlled. There are some resources out there as well, and that really emphasizes flexibility as well as trying new ways of doing things. And so there are a range of treatments that I think can be helpful for OCPD. And, and I feel like a combination of CBT and ACT sort of where I'm focusing, yeah. as well as for those that are in that more controlling presentation style, yeah. they may need additional emotion regulation strategies because they are more likely to have those lash outs or outbursts where a sense of control is threatened. And right. so I have found some emotion regulation work there can also be really helpful to help them in terms of like, you know, naming emotions and to have like some other strategies for for regulating and sort of diffusing in those situations where they're feeling so reactive. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And ACT, that's actually something we're going to be talking about here on the podcast in the new year, early in the new mm -hmm. year. But one of the big takeaways <laughs> is an oversimplification, but it's yeah. looking at kind of your value-driven life. And so you can see just from like that ideology and that concept, how useful that could be in OCPD treatment, because we're trying to, again, create that hierarchy of what do we value? What are we going to turn the light up on this? Mm -hmm. And yes. where are we going to dim it down? And so I can see how that would really jive well with OCPD treatment as well. Within OCPD, and I know you said there's not enough research and there's more research needed. What is kind of the typical course of treatment? Because within OCD, mm -hmm. we might look at, you know, 16 weeks and go, hey, we can really reduce that score on a Y box. But mm -hmm. it, what would that look like 
-hmm. or is it kind of just variable? Yeah. You know, at our center, we treat OCD and OCPD as our primary conditions. We offer medication management as well as individual CBT and group CBT as well. And like I mentioned, we we offer a a group that's specifically for OCPD. Mm -hmm. So the, the typical course of treatment for our psychotherapy here is about six months for OCD. And, you know, this is once a week, 45 minute sessions. For OCPD, I think you can see a lot of behavior change in that initial six month period using that approach that I described before in terms of like adjusting self-care practices, as well as the dimmer switch and identifying the rules that are getting in their way. But I do find for OCPD that you can get initial behavior change. It does take longer to sustain those changes. So in terms of like the, the, the duration, I would say, that I think you can get in that book that I described, I, mm-hmm. I, I talk about 14 sessions. Like that was like a very tight, like longer sessions. And, and that was part of like a, a research study. So, I mean, I think you can get the nuts and bolts in, in a, in a shorter period of time. But to really integrate this into their lives, you know, I think you're looking at this is a a longer stretch, so six months plus. And I've certainly had individuals that I have in six months, but most of my OCPD, primary OCPD clients, they tend to require more time. Yeah. And I think that's something I think you brought up a good point. A lot of times research and to compete, really, they're going to also have to have kind of these succinct timelines where we want to also be able to see. We were talking about SMART goals last week to see and measure progress in a certain amount of time. So we have to have some way to measure that as well. But it sounds like, yes, to sustain. And I liked the word you used because you can see some of those immediate changes, but it takes time to build new habits. It takes time to, to sustain and maintain and maintaining might look more like a wave than a than a linear line here and so yes it's going to take more time to invest do you know and i'm i'm gonna guess that maybe your clinic's ocpd support group is probably one of the very few if only yes and i was just thinking that would be such a great virtual group because i think there is certainly a need for it and, you know, I wonder, too, at the IOCDF conferences, if they do sometimes their support groups or, or get togethers after the conference schedule in the evenings where you can connect with some other people. But, yeah, I mean, it seems like a virtual support yes. group would be really helpful, but it would also be helpful to probably have a clinician. Some of these can be peer led, but also have a clinician that's knowledgeable that would be willing to take that on. So. <laughs> Anybody out there already treating OCPD that you're like, hey, I could do that. Uh, We'd love for you to step up and let us know. We'll be happy to share about it on the podcast. But yeah, I mean, that that sounds like it would be so helpful because knowing you're not alone. I mean, even finding it's OCPD, maybe not OCD. It's like, oh, well, maybe I felt like I had an understanding of this. Now I feel even more isolated. And so no, it's very common. You said 25% of the mm-hmm. OCD population also have OCPD. That, yeah. One out of four, that's pretty high odds. Yeah, no, that's why it's so important for people who treat OCD to know about this. 
And one of the things that I've been spending more and more time on is training, training individuals to identify OCPD and to treat it. And so that you mentioned the International OCD Foundation, I, I try to regularly have some form of training there. And that at the last conference we did, Dr. Wheaton and I did role plays where we demonstrated CBT. And I think it was very well received. But we're trying to make it very practical. Like, what does this look like? You know, give people a clinical picture of it. And what do you do about it? And so I, I'm, I plan to spend more time talking about this, but also writing about it and maybe providing more like self-help resources for people so that they can start doing this work on their own if they can't find providers, but also training clinicians so that they have the tools that they need to work with the population. Yeah, it's interesting because like you said, someone could read an article, hear a podcast and go, that sounds like me actually, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so in this case, Clients might have greater insight than some of the therapists in the field, right. you know, that are like, yeah. I don't know, personality disorders are yeah. confusing. Yeah. Insurance doesn't like that diagnosis. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of clinician fear, like, oh, I, I don't know, can you, can you really make change with a personality disorder? Like, is this person really going to want to make change? And so I think that that rationale buying in piece is so important and we want clinicians to seek out resources so they can educate themselves about this. And, you know, like you said, there's a lot of similarities with OCD treatment. If you're already treating OCD, there's some adjustments that you can make to help out these clients as well. Yeah, that's that's certainly really helpful. So I love that. So going to IOCDF, you can go to conferences. Also, it sounds like, and I'm going to post your link for your OCD center on OCD Family Podcast. People can go there and find out more information. There's the videos, too, that you referenced that are over there. So that can be a helpful resource. As we kind of uh, draw things kind of towards a conclusion here today, I'm mm -hmm. wondering about family and the interaction, really, how they can support my accommodation looks similar to OCD or what does that look like? And where are some support resources that they could look into? Certainly, they could look into your book to get a little more information. They can partner with a therapist for their loved one. But what are some tips for the family as we kind of think about this? Yeah, I think that uh, the experience of living with somebody with OCPD can be very challenging or stressful. And so I often will recommend if it's an option for those individuals also to seek out the psychotherapy in order to get support for how to manage a situation, especially somebody who is on that more controlling side of the uh, presentation of OCPD, where it can feel very, very much like a, a situation where you're being ordered, you know, to, to live a certain way, to live under certain rules. And so having an outlet for that in terms of how to cope is very important. I think in terms of what you were saying about accommodation, we, we certainly, and I know your podcast has focused on family accommodation for OCD and how in OCD, the family members can get pulled into the whole OCD cycle and pulled into either doing compulsions for the individual that's affected with OCD or facilitating avoidance. And so essentially creating an environment where that individual with OCD not able to like achieve safety learning and where the family members involved in trying to remove anxiety because they see how distressed the individual is. I think that that concept of accommodation, though it hasn't been 
studied, I think, which it needs to be. But I think that accommodation principle also applies in OCPD, where because these individuals can become possibly dysregulated if they're the controlling type or become very distressed if they're the anxious type, the, the loved one may feel that they have to then accommodate and create, you know, go along with all these rules because they're trying to help the individual who's affected or not make waves or not create conflict. But it, unfortunately, it does maintain the same cycles as it does in OCD as well. And so, as so I would uh, suggest if the individual who's affected is in treatment, I would suggest the loved one, as you mentioned, you know, ask to participate in that treatment so that as part of like a, a new learning that they're, they're focusing on in the therapy, that this could also focus on the home environment and how the loved one can pull out of that whole cycle. And it's going to be important for the loved one to assert themselves and say, I love you and I support you, but I'm not going to participate in these rules because I find them very stressful and time consuming. And it's actually getting in the way of the life I want. Or if there are kids involved, you need to also think about like, is it negatively impacting the mental health of the children? So this is certainly something that loved ones should ask to be, if, if the individual is okay with it, to be involved in the treatment or to seek treatment on their own. So they're getting the support they need for what can be a stressful home environment. Yeah, I think those are really good points. And, you know, it is interesting because where a lot of times OCD in the home environment is going to be desperate mm -hmm. for your help, this OCPD is going to be very strongly preferential that they just do it the correct way. And so some of what that might look like is not conceding to, I'm going to let them, you know, set the table because they get very upset when I set the table, even though it looks the same to me, but whatever. Then set the table. It's probably nice that they like to set the table, but are they setting the table for 30 minutes and still doing things to set the table? That is an example of where we might see accommodation pop up and we can be like, okay, well, you know what? Similar within OCD, they're strong. They're a strong person. It's not going to kill them yeah. to be frustrated. They're not asking for it, but you're also limiting your life to be able to allow room for them to engage in this. And so it's mutually beneficial to be able to take some control back in your life and do things the way you would prefer. Maybe you don't even know what you would prefer because it's been such a long time. In terms of like the couple's relationship, mm -hmm. I was thinking about, you know, living by specific rules, having a very, especially if it's that controlling personality type. There's a buzzword of gaslighting nowadays, right. and certainly gaslighting does yeah. occur, but yeah. I could see how someone struggling with OCPD might have these very rigid, very strict rules where the intent isn't to manipulate, but the other person, the other partner, the other spouse might be like, the hell it isn't. Uh, I can't, I have no say in this. And if not, I pay for it in terms of how frustrated and angry they get. I could see that dynamic playing out where the intention isn't gaslighting and certainly maybe where it could escalate into that. But I don't know if you guys, if mm -hmm. you've talked about this much, but it's, it's, an, it's a very current thing in culture. So I thought it would be worth yeah. bringing up. Yeah, no, I, I think the individual, the OCPD, and, you know, again, not, not meaning to generalize, but just giving you like some drawing from some clinical experience is very much like 
connected to a certain way of seeing things and, and doing things. And so be difficult for that person to consider the point of view or the perspective of the partner and that can create conflict. And, and the partner of the person with OCPD may also have to put up with a lot in the home in terms of like, let's say the individual with OCPD has to make a purchase and they have to read all of the reviews on Amazon like that, that purchase, even if it's like a relatively minor one is going to then get stuck in a queue of things that have to be done. And then the partner is like, oh, wait, what about that item that you were buying? Like, oh, I'm not done. And so that person is just chronically having to wait for stuff. Or if it's like one of the examples, which sounds kind of funny, but it's not actually, if you're living in this, is like the dishwasher example comes up in so many of these couples because the person with the need for order is wanting to unload the whole thing and rearrange it so that they're maximizing the space in there. Mm -hmm. And that's frustrating because like, you know, it's, it, you know, the, the, the loved one is like, well, why, you know, who cares? And let's just move on. Mm -hmm. But they're getting mired in all these details. So I think the, you know, the gaslighting example, probably something where you, you might see it more in, in this like control type, especially sometimes you might see comorbidity with like narcissism. And so, you know, that, that can be a particularly challenging. So, you know, couples therapy in that situation to help the individual who's affected, see the perspective of the other one and giving them communication strategies that are going to allow them, you know, to hear each other. So there can be various levels of treatment necessary in those cases. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I am just so appreciative of the time that we've had together today because I know I'm having a much better working understanding of OCPD. I feel like I could spot it, but I bet I could spot it even better now just having a richer understanding of this. And I mean, I think with doing this entire series on OCD-related disorders, and if you go to the OCD conference, I love the OCD conference IOCDF puts on, but there is very limited content on some of these OCD-related disorders. And I feel like there's gaining traction for BFRBs and some for BDD, although still big ways to go. OCPD is just kind of elusive. There's maybe one. <laughs> You're like, I yeah. know I'm doing them. <laughs> You're right. For right? I'm there. <laughs> yeah. I invite others to join. But yeah, I mean, it, I would imagine more research is needed and just getting resources for this can be tricky. But we have your website, so we can go there, those educational videos, and you guys are training doctoral students as well, right? And so there's future generations of treatment providers coming. If people are interested in getting more involved with research or seeing if, you know, we've talked about getting involved with research on other episodes, like where would you recommend them going? Or if they want to be a part of this, maybe they already have a doctorate. Maybe they just mm -hmm. want to kind of add in or maybe they're not at a doctorate level, but they're like, I see this and I want to be able to learn more. Yeah, I, I, I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it is kind of lonely at times the holding the OCPD flag. And I, I do welcome colleagues and other interested parties in learning more about this. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the educational resources out there, like learn more about OCPD and what it looks like and see patients with OCPD to build up clinical experience. But yeah, if somebody is interested in 
in pursuing this on a deeper level. We, where we have a couple of initiatives now, I'm working with the team at the Personality Disorders Institute at McLean. We've recorded some training videos on OCPD and CBT for OCPD that are going to be made available to universities around the country. And so we're hoping, like we said earlier, to get the word out about this. If others are interested in, in figuring out how to like develop more expertise in this area, I encourage you to reach out to me and I'd be happy to, to talk more. It's starting out with education, clinical experience for clinicians that want to move into this area. And yeah, the conferences, like I said, like be happy to talk to anyone there about ways to build experience. Research in OCPD is something like very much needed. And so we are doing some here in New York at Northwell at the Zucker Hillside Hospital. But yeah, I mean, I sadly, I, I can't even identify any other active research studies in OCPD, which like I said, we need on every level in I terms agree. of like the learning about the brain, other treatments, treatment approaches. We know very little about like pharmacotherapy for OCPD. There's a suggestion that SSRIs might help, especially for the anxiety elements that we talked about in the anxious style. There's just so much that we need to learn more about and more treatment options and more learning about mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. That is, that's really interesting. So if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I'm, I'm applying to doctoral programs or master's programs. I need a master's thesis, a dissert idea. I feel like actually the doctorate level, when you're in school, I mean, you get to be a part of such a dynamic team of researchers. And you have to choose whether you want to be more clinical or research intensive, but mm -hmm. it really makes such an impact. And there are so many things not known, but this is so prevalent. So it's like, we know it's a problem and there's not really a lot of places to go with that. OCPD needs more support so we can make a difference. Thank you so much for the time. I would love to be able to talk again at some point. Yeah, I would um, love that. Yeah. And really, really appreciate you just helping us have a better understanding of what treatment would look like when it's showing up and the hope. You gave us another helping of hope and we always, we live for that because we need to have hope that even with the limited research, we have good outcomes showing that, mm -hmm. you know, and it might take longer to sustain the progress. Again, more mm -hmm. effort to build those new habits, but it's possible. So I super appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you, Dr. Pinto. Yes, thank you. And it was a real pleasure, Nicole. And I look forward to talking again and really glad that we're ending on that message of hope because the CBT approaches that we have work. People can make progress. They can move towards a life that they want. And so we've more work to be done, but we have a good avenue here. So thanks again. I appreciate the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, too. Thank you for that. For our intrusive thoughts segment today, I want to remind everyone to remember two key elements when it comes to OCPD and actually OCD for what it's worth. These conditions are both very treatable. There's hope, family. There's hope. Now, yes, when it comes to OCPD, there's not a lot of research specifically on what would be most beneficial for people suffering from OCPD. But that being said, there's a ton of research for cognitive behavioral therapy, that's CBT, at large. And as you heard Dr. Pinto say, 
adding CBT with some ERP or behavior activation or that reformation of dialectical behavior therapy that's DBT called radically open DBT? Well, DBT has a good amount of research behind it too. Dr. Pinto mentioned acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT, and, you know, consulting with your doctor because maybe an SSRI could be helpful for those anxious presentations. But it can be better, and we can do better, but we need more research to do it. And that leads me to my second key element. It starts with you. You're like, did I? Did I hear her right? (laughs) Did she just say me? Me? Yes, you and me and Anthony Pinto and your neighbor and my family member and your cousin or maybe even that super friendly grocery checker that always is asking about what's new. It starts with a conversation and conversations can bring awareness. Not sure what to say? No worries. You can head over to Dr. Pinto's website, which remember, I'll be linking at ocdfamilypodcast.com if you weren't able to write down the address when he shared it earlier, to learn more about his anxiety center, because you know he's already given us the download on OCPD videos that we can find there, and we can learn more and just continue these conversations. Or maybe you just share this podcast. Maybe it starts with a conversation, and that brings awareness and understanding to the great strengths that you or a loved one already has, and lets somebody know they're not alone. Are you a clinician? The self-rated inventory and the chapter on those session outlines, that sounded pretty good to me. What if you added these to your assessment toolbox or to your annual updates? We might think, but hey, I'm just a person and I'm just listening to this podcast while I'm driving or cooking or fading off to sleep. What difference can I make? Well, what if I told you I'm just a person that said, hey, let's have some conversations and root each other on and risked pressing record or reaching out to international experts like Dr. Anthony Pinto and warriors with lived experience to find out more about OCD. BFRBs, BDD, emetophobia, hoarding, and OCPD. As it turns out, it doesn't take an army. It takes one person willing to speak up and have a conversation. So my challenge to you, family, is to have a conversation this week. Share something you learned about OCPD or ask a question. Because it's okay if you don't get it, or I don't get it. Because we, we're not alone. And we can sync up with people that do get it. And then, it's like lighting a candle and watching it multiply. We may start with one flame, but the more that we share what we know or even ask our questions, the more we can invite conversation, the more we can participate the more we can learn. Our voices matter. Your voice matters. So risk being tongue-tied, saying, I don't know. (laughs) We're discussing the matter more because you, me, Anthony Pinto, our loved ones, we're all better together. So with that, I'm drawing this awesome OCD-related disorder series to a close. Another special thank you to all of my guest experts 
family members, warriors with lived experience that took the OCD family community on this journey to raise awareness, resources, and support. And, well, housekeeping. You know, the family got to do some housekeeping. If you check out OCD Family Podcast social media across platforms, I'll be publishing some holiday tips and tricks for managing the increased stress that can get fueled up this time of year. And so keep on the lookout for some extra holiday support from your extended OCD fam, including a bonus episode, that's right, bonus podcast, that's dropping soon. It's a little holiday treat, I'll tell you. And I even commissioned my handsome hubs to help with it because, you know, we love ourselves a Patrick moment on the podcast. So stay tuned for that special episode that'll be coming up soon. And with that, with that, I hope to see you at our next family gathering. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like you and me learning about OCPD. That's right, I went there. And you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. 